Hello again. I didn't introduce myself. I'm Jennifer, the associate pastor here. And one of my perpetual problems is that my feelings don't come at convenient times. <laughs> I'm always weepy when I don't want to be. And so here I am, teary, about to preach to you about joy. So forgive me. <laughs> I do have joy in my heart. So if there are some tears, I trust that you'll uh, look past that. We're going to look at one of my favorite scriptures today, Romans 8. I love Romans chapter 8. If ever you don't know what to read, try Romans 8. It works for me. But uh, we're at the end of Romans 8 today, verses 31 to 39, and we're going to start with this. So if we could put that on screen, and there's also a Bible in your pew. You probably have a Bible app on your phone, however you want to look at it. It's good to have the scripture in front of us while someone's preaching because it just it helps. So what then shall we say? in response to these things. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Nope, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And we say, Amen. This is an amazing passage of scripture, one of the most encouraging, most comforting, most exciting parts of the Bible, in my opinion. If you're a believer in Christ, I think it's pretty hard to read this and not thank God in your heart for what he has done. And so I chose to start off this morning with this scripture because the spiritual temperament we're learning about today is the enthusiast. Now, this is just what it sounds like, people who are enthusiastic about God. And they connect with God through joyful celebration in community with others. And they expect God to show up in supernatural ways. They're excited about what God is doing in the world and what he is going to do. And they need to express that through energetic worship and through creativity. So far in this sermon series called Sacred Pathways, we've looked at four different spiritual temperaments. Um, can you name some of them? Anybody? There's clues on stage. Naturalist, traditionalist, ascetic, and caregiver are the four we've looked at, and each of those pathways represents one way that some people connect best with God. We've taken these terms out of Gary Thomas's book called Sacred Pathways, so if you want to learn more, I highly recommend reading that. And that book's in our library, or you can get it on Amazon quite easily. And if you've missed some of the sermons in this series so far, I encourage you to go on our website and watch them, because our goal is to help you discover how you connect best with God 
and then also to appreciate others who might connect with God differently and to try some of their ways so that we can expand the ways that we can find God in the world around us. But so far, these four temperaments we've already looked at, um, they connect with God in pretty predictable and calm sorts of ways. Um, The naturalist sees God through all that he's made, through creation. They love to be outdoors in the beauty of nature. That's where they feel God's presence. The traditionalist loves the familiar routines of church, liturgy, and um, tradition. The ascetic loves to get alone with God, away from the rest of the world and the distractions. The caregiver connects with God by serving others, by meeting practical needs, and they feel God's presence in them as they do that. But the enthusiast wants to shake them all and say, hey, why aren't you more excited? God loves us. He's with us, and he's at work all around us, so let's rejoice together. Let's risk it all for him. He is worth it. He's going to do something awesome. Have you met anybody like that? It's Hannah, (laughs) and it's Liz, but Liz isn't here today. There's a few. The, The people that just get us pumped and going. The church needs enthusiasts, and they're the optimists, the encouragers, the ones that Gary says in his book, love God with gusto, okay? Unfortunately, I think our gusto is sometimes a bit lacking uh, in our Sunday morning worship, but we should be excited to meet together with God and thank him for all that he's done for us. He deserves applause and dancing and shouting Uh, Jesus once said to some of the uptight religious leaders who were criticizing the crowd for being so noisy, Jesus said, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. God was worthy of our joyful celebration. And people are usually excited and more energetic at hockey games and rock concerts and political rallies than they are at church, at least at Baptist churches. We're not known for our expressiveness in worship, and part of that's cultural, and that's okay. There are Baptist churches in Africa that are very joyful and enthusiastic in their worship, but here in Canada, and particularly at White Rock Baptist, we tend to be more reserved and more reflective, and that's not a bad thing, but we need to understand that it is a frustrating thing for the enthusiasts among us, because they feel God's presence most strongly when we celebrate together. So I think it's something we do need to work on a little. Showing a little more emotion and excitement in our worship won't kill us, I promise. It'll probably even encourage us and others. So last week, thinking of this sermon, we tried to put some thought and effort into how to make our worship different and more enthusiastic today. But in the end, I thought, unless the joy bubbles up from our hearts, the type of music we play or the instruments that we play, that's not going to make any difference. What we need to learn from the enthusiasts is how to have their desire to celebrate. Otherwise, it might just all be for show. We could clap and dance and turn up the music, but if our hearts don't find joy in Christ, then what is the point? So my question for us to consider today is, where does our joy come from as believers? Are we actually excited about what Christ has done for us? Does it touch our hearts? The passage I read for you in Romans 8 gives us a really great starting point to find some joy today. So I'm going to go back and go through that passage with you. I I love that it really expresses the heart of an enthusiast in the confidence that Paul writes about, his confidence in God. 
And in the book of Romans, up to chapter 8, the Apostle Paul is explaining all of the benefits and the blessings that come from knowing Jesus. And this is sort of the climax of everything he's said up to this point. He's, this is what it all boils down to. God's eternal love poured out on us in Christ. Little children in our Sunday school learn the song, Jesus Loves Me, from the time that they're babies. Who knows that song? Oh, come on, more of you than that know it. There we go. Jesus Loves Me. We could all sing that, right? Um, I'm sure you learned it if you went to church at all growing up. And our message as a church to everybody that we meet is that God loves them personally and individually. But just to just to say God loves you, that can feel a bit cliche, or, you know, if we don't explain it, those three words alone don't necessarily inspire joy in our hearts. And so in this scripture that we're going to look at, Paul gives us four ways that God has proven his love for us. And then he assures us that that love is permanent, unchangeable. We can never, ever be separated from it. And so I want to encourage you, if you like taking notes, write these ways down today. Think about them when you need to find some joy in your faith, because they really encourage me. So how does God prove his love? Number one, first of all, Paul says God works for our good. If God is for us, who can be against us? Obviously, we are the winners if the God of the universe is on our side. Just a couple verses earlier in this same chapter, Paul says, in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. We might look at our circumstances sometimes and say, oh, everything is working against me. But that's not true. If you know Jesus as your Savior and Lord, then everything is working together for your good because God is doing that. He's working. Even all of the bad stuff, the painful stuff, the stuff that Satan wants to use to try and harm you, God will redeem that and use it for your ultimate good, which is to make you more like his son Jesus. So if all of our sufferings and all of our difficulties are actually working for us, not against us, then there's nothing that can harm us, right? If God is on our side, he's our protection, he's our warrior, he's defending us from harm, he is turning bad into good, working always for our benefit. So God works for our good. That's the first thing. How else does God prove his love? Well, Paul says he gives us everything. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Jesus was willing to die for us when we were still sinners, when we didn't want him or ask for him. God gave his own son to people who didn't recognize him. They didn't appreciate it. They betrayed and crucified him. So if that is how God loves people who don't love him back, how much more is he going to love those of us who do love him back? How much more is he going to demonstrate his love and bless us? This is a type of argument that the Apostle Paul makes a lot in the Bible. He's arguing from the lesser to the greater. Right? If God would be so self-sacrificing to give his own son for people who didn't want him, then how much more will he give us who do want him? He'll give us everything, Paul says, all things. A little earlier in Romans 8, it says, Now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. Think, 
I don't know if it's possible to understand this, but let's try. Heirs of God. We will inherit, as God's children, everything that God has. Christ earned it through his perfect life and his sacrificial death, and we are in Christ, receiving his reward with him. It's like this famous hymn says, why should I gain from his reward? But we do. That's what scripture tells us. We gain from Christ's reward, resurrection, eternal life, eternal joy, a new heaven and a new earth, ruling with Christ over a perfect world forever. This is what the Bible promises us. And this isn't just something that will be true in the future, but it's actually something that is a spiritual reality right now. Not the part about the perfect world, that'll come when Jesus returns, but we are already ruling with Christ. Ephesians 2.6, and God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms. We've been given every spiritual blessing in Christ. He fills us with his spirit and he gives us his authority over all things. So God gives us everything. Number three, God justifies us, Paul says. Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Now, I need to explain the word justifies. Justification is a theological term that means just as if I'd never sinned. That's the easiest way to remember it. It doesn't mean justified the way we might use it in conversation. Like, my anger is justified. When we say that, we mean that something's legitimate, that there's a good reason behind it. But uh, justification in the Bible has no good reason behind it except for God's mercy. He just does it. Justification means that God has declared us, us sinners, to be righteous in Christ. He's given us Christ's righteousness to cover all our sins so we can actually have a relationship with God. Otherwise, our sin wouldn't allow us into God's holy presence. And we know this. Our unworthiness often bothers us. So even as believers, often we try and earn God's favor and his love. We try and be good and do good deeds so that hopefully our goodness will outweigh our badness and then God will accept us. But you guys, that's never going to work. Our so-called goodness is never going to make up for our sin. Our motives are never pure. Our thoughts are never pure. We are sinners through and through. Sin is not just something that we do. It's part of us. But God, in his incredible love and mercy, has justified us anyways. He's declared us righteous in Christ. And Paul fleshes this out in the earlier chapters of Romans. If you go back to chapter 3, he says, A person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law, apart from anything they do. Romans 4, 5, To the one who does not work but trusts God, who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. So if we have faith in Christ, who died and rose again, then God justifies us. And what he has declared, nobody can argue with. That's the point Paul is making here. Satan might try. He's the accuser, the one who whispers in our ear, you're not good enough. God's never going to accept you. You better get it together, right? But there are, there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's the first verse of chapter 8. There's, so there's nothing Satan can say that will have any effect we know we're sinners, God knows we're sinners, but God has chosen 
to declare us righteous anyways, to justify us. He's never going to change his mind. That decree is set in stone forever. We're justified through faith in Christ. And that means, by the way, that if you tend to think of God as the one who's accusing you and being hard on you and judging you because you don't measure up, then you've got the wrong picture of God. God doesn't accuse his children because he's the one who justified us. The Holy Spirit might point things out to our hearts that aren't right, because the closer we get to him, the more sensitive our conscience will be. We'll start to notice things that aren't correct. But it's never an accusation. It's never a condemnation of us. Satan is the accuser. The Holy Spirit is our comforter, our encourager. And so when he helps us to see our sin, then it's always with a voice of love, saying, you're, you're better than this. I'll give you what you need to overcome this sin. We can work on this together. I'm on your side. Okay? So we've been declared righteous by God himself. Why would he accuse us? God justifies us. Number four. Last thing Paul says in the first few verses here is that God, Jesus intercedes for us. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. He says also interceding because a few verses earlier he said the Spirit of God intercedes for us. Now in the Old Testament, there needed to be a priest to be the mediator between us ordinary humans and God. And the priest had two jobs, basically to offer sacrifices for the people's sin, and then to represent the people before God. But now Jesus is our high priest in heaven. He offered the sacrifice of his own perfect life, and now he represents us before the throne of God in heaven. He asks God to provide for what we need and to protect us and to work through us and show his love to others in the world. And so we don't have to try and represent ourselves before God. Imagine some kind of a court case, right? Jesus is our defense lawyer who's guaranteed to win this case. The accuser can accuse, but Jesus will beat him every time. We have constant victory in Jesus. So once again, we see that God is on our side because Jesus intercedes for us. We can rest assured that we are accepted by God, no matter what. And so the conclusion of all this, then, is that nothing can ever separate us from God's love. We are stuck with it, okay? God works for our good. He gives us everything. He justifies us, and Jesus intercedes for us himself. And so we're safe and secure in God's love, and that should bring us deep joy if we can understand it. These are some deep theological truths that I've been trying to to explain, but, and we have to think about them hard and ask God for insight to really feel the joy that these truths can bring. Because life isn't going to be perfect. There's going to be hard times. There's going to be all kinds of stuff. We're still going to go through, um, well, Paul lists a whole bunch of things, right? Famine and sword and homelessness and all kinds of things we might experience, persecution. And he quotes from Psalm 44. He says, for your sake, that is for Jesus' sake, we face death all day long. We're considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Why does he put that in this passage about joy? Because he knows we're going to read all these things and go, well, that's very nice, Paul, but you don't know what I'm going through today. You don't know what my life is like. And so his point here is that the persecution, the suffering, the hardships 
are actually nothing compared to the gifts we've been given. We have to try and put them in perspective. Even in the very worst circumstances that life could throw at us, God's love is there. We can't be separated from it. His presence is going to be with us, and that can give us joy even when we aren't happy about what's happening. So now you can see a little bit of why the enthusiasts need us to rejoice. We have so much to celebrate. These four truths that I've given to you today, they're really mind-boggling the more we think about them, and they're just the very beginning of what God has in store for us. He said no mind can even imagine or comprehend what God has in store for those who love him. And so while there is a time in the church to lament and to bear each other's burdens and to sit in quiet contemplation with the Lord, there also has to be a time to rejoice. We'll always be able to find a reason why it shouldn't be now, why there's some other thing going on. That, but we have to rejoice in what Christ has done. We have to celebrate. And how we do that might look different from person to person. One enthusiast might really love worship music and rock bands and drums. Unfortunately, we had no drummer today, but what can you do? One enthusiast might love dinner parties, or they might love festivals and events where everyone gets together in celebration. But all of them need to be together with God's people and worshiping and joyfully um, celebrating him together. So they don't sneak off to be alone with God as much as the ascetics and the intellectuals and maybe the naturalists do. They want to be together with people. They're relational. Their best connection with God includes other people. And I just want to say two more things about enthusiasts, that, about this temperament, um, two more things we can learn from them, that they're expectant and that they see beyond the things of this world. Expectancy it's kind of like faith. It means that when they pray, they actually expect an answer. They anticipate God's going to do something in response. And often, enthusiasts are people who are constantly looking for divine appointments in their day, people that God might bring across their path that they can help or serve in some way. They're people who take risks, who will take a big leap of faith and trust that God won't fail them. They can actually feel kind of stifled by the very same things that the traditionalists love, which is the routine and the familiarity and uh, the liturgy. But the enthusiasts want to see God do new things. They thrive on change and spontaneity. And when they've been expecting God to show up and then he does, that's what really helps them connect to his presence. And also, the supernatural manifestations of God don't scare them. Enthusiasts are usually drawn to that mystery of God and some of the more charismatic expressions of our faith. So they might experience dreams or visions or have a spiritual gift like healing or speaking in tongues. Those kinds of things might confuse or intimidate some of us, but not enthusiasts. They know there's a supernatural world all around us that we cannot see. And they're ready to see God do miracles and to transform lives. They believe those things are possible. And so that sense of expectancy and that ability to perceive what's really going on around us that we can't experience with our five senses, um, those things make the enthusiasts unique, I think. They, they balance out some of us who are a little more cynical or pessimistic, and they encourage us to have more faith and to expand our definition of reality. I think the Apostle Paul must have been an enthusiast, because, among other things, I don't think anybody who wasn't an enthusiast could have written Romans 8. 
And so, in closing, I want to read for you this scripture one more time, but this time I'm going to read it from the message version. And when I'm finished, we're going to do a little call and response thing that some churches do, where the leader says, God is good, and the people say, all the time. And then I say, all the time, and you guys say, God is good. Okay, let's practice once, so that we can do it with gusto at the end. We're not used to it, so we got to practice, okay? God is good. All the time. Okay, that was pretty good. I think you can do better after I read the scripture, okay? Listen, here's Romans 8 in the message. So what do you think? With God on our side like this, how can we lose? If God doesn't hesitate to put everything on the line for us, embracing our condition and exposing himself to the worst by sending his own son, is there anything else he wouldn't gladly and freely do for us? And who would dare tangle with God by messing with one of God's chosen? Who would dare to even point a finger? The one who died for us, who was raised to life for us, is in the presence of God at this very moment, sticking up for us. Do you think anyone's going to be able to drive a wedge between us and Christ's love? There is no way. Not trouble, not hard times, not hatred, not hunger, not homelessness, not bullying threats, not backstabbing, not even the worst sins listed in scripture. They kill us in cold blood because they hate you. We're sitting ducks. They pick us off one by one. None of this phases us because Jesus loves us. I'm absolutely convinced that nothing, nothing living or dead, angelic or demonic, today or tomorrow, high or low, thinkable or unthinkable, absolutely nothing can get between us and God's love because of the way that Jesus, our master, has embraced us. God is good. All the time. All the time. God is good. Amen.